Hello everyone, it's February 4th, 2020. So this week we got a near miss in one of those dead satellite conjunctions and the ISS is getting some commercial additions to its Harmony module forward port. Well, it's gonna take at least four years, so eventually, but we can talk about it now. Let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 246 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So in space news that we haven't talked about, actually, I couldn't find any news on this, just some photos, I think. Uh, did you hear that there was another tank test down at Boca? Yeah. I, yeah. I believe it was. Okay. I couldn't find any actual news on that, just uh, some videos on YouTube. But apparently they tested another tank to uh, its maximum pressure. I think it was like 19 bars, something like that, 19 yeah, bar. I got it here. Hang on a sec. I don't remember. Yeah, so, 8.5 8. bars, I believe. Okay, 8 bar. So previously it did 7.5 bar um, and then started leaking. Like it didn't explode, it just started leaking. And then they repaired it and then they got it up to uh, 8.5 bar. Uh, in a cryo test. Right. And what's, uh, the operating pressure supposed to be? So 8.4 is, is their, is their goal to get to six times the standard. Whereas the industry standard is 1.4 times, not six times. So 8.4 okay. is their over. There we go. So the operating pressure is only like what, just a few bar then, I guess? Yeah. Like- yeah 1.4. Yep. That's got to be 1.4 over atmospheric, right? Not absolute. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to be able to add anything to this conversation, so I'm going to I'm going to pull out here. <laughs> so uh, that was a cool test. You can see some nitrogen just going everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, spectacular explosion. But uh, that's all the talking about that will do, I guess. Another topic that that's too small to really fit into uh, an actual discussion is um, we got uh, another. A higher res photo of the Schiaparelli crash. So I think it's funny that we now have two Schiaparelli craters on Mars. And so this is, uh, Schiaparelli crater, the minor. And, uh, we, we got, uh, new photos of it. And it's interesting, you know, to watch the dark ejecta begin to, uh, fade, uh, over time. And, you know, the, the crater itself kind of, kind of appear there um i wonder how much of the how much of the dark ejecta um disappearing is from the dust storm uh that's you know still settling out well i mean it's a very windy planet yeah although i suppose you think it's possible that some of that ejecta just like things that are on the surface of the moon they just kind of like become bleached over time because of all yeah radiation bleached or they oxidize or yeah something like that i don't know but yeah, there's you know still a couple of bright spots near the crater that you can see that must be uh, must be bits of the spacecraft. Yeah, when you when you click on the uh, the picture, and it takes you to the like the full processed image. Yeah, the if you look at the the full image, uh, the the Schiaparelli crash site is like almost right in the center of the image. So there's the big crater down at the bottom, and then there are like three kind of shallow, really soft edge craters. If you look at the bottom the bottom two and draw a line between them. The crash side is about halfway between them and then straight down. So you can kind of get a scale for... You could t- you could tell that they wanted to see this <laughs> crash site with this particular mm-hmm. uh, set of... Or this particular image. We, we could... Honestly, we could, we could look at Mars imagery forever, right? <laughs> yeah. Just a couple of days ago, there was a, a near miss between two satellites, and uh, it was an interesting thing to watch. I didn't keep track of it in real time, but I found out about like an hour later that there was no collision, so that was yes. good news, because I was very right. happy to hear that. I watched it on uh, social media. 
kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's actually a really great um, image on Twitter that Julian Diamond took. There'll be a link in the show notes where you can actually see the intersection uh, of the two trails, which which is just super cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the interesting thing was here was the, the uncertainty of the of the collision of the, of the chance of collision because. So uh, GGSE4 had an 18-meter boom on it. Mm-hmm. And the question was, which direction is that boom facing? Um, so you calculate these odds as the odds of, of two spheres hitting each other, right? Because, you, you know, it, that's the easiest way to model it. So one of the folks I had seen doing predictions was uh, Leo Labs, um, which is, you know, right down here in the Bay Area. They had initially calculated chances with a hard body radius of five meters and they uh, they bumped it up to 10 meters to account for the the boom and Mm -hmm. uh, that brought the the odds down to one in 20 which i think was the smallest predicted odds i had seen and and that's kind of terrifying so both of these satellites iras and ggse4 were defunct satellites and so that's kind of why we were all kind of sitting back and watching and not you know waiting to see who was going to move like we did with the uh, uh the starlink uh near miss last year right with uh aeolus i think now couldn't it be assumed that the boom on that satellite was facing the earth because that was the whole point of it right you could reasonably predict that that was the orientation of that satellite yeah right because it was a it was a gravity boom or a, a gravity mm-hmm. gradient boom right yeah so so that seems that seems pretty reasonable. I've seen depictions of this intersection as two circles sitting on top of each other, but I think the vertical distance that was displayed was just to make it visually, to make it obvious that there were two circles so you could actually tell what mm-hmm. was going on. So maybe that's not, maybe that's not correct. But yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess that's interesting. I didn't think about, you know, the boom being passively <laughs> stable in a, in a radial configuration. But that seems that seems pretty reasonable. So what was the altitude of these satellites? Because I'm just wondering if they're coming down like anytime soon, or is this something we're going to have to worry about? Well, I guess not this particular conjunction, but, you know, like how long will they be up there for the next 100 years, 200, whatever? Yeah. They were saying 900, 900 kilometers. Okay, nine, 900 kilometers. Okay. And over the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was pretty cool. There, there were astronomers in the Bay Area who were posting photos but the 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 intersection happened just beyond the horizon and so they couldn't see it but yeah okay pittsburgh well i like what valentin's bringing up in the chat like if we have an idea of this being a new normal that we shouldn't expect these near misses to be happening uh more frequently because it's been uh what 2009 was the last uh big uh collision that wasn't anti-satellite what was that collision was that like a french satellite and a russian one something like that it's i don't definitely a russian remember. one and oh it was um i think it was an iridium oh, okay we had talked about last week or at least i think in a short and sweet how important it is to you know deorbit space junk and so i think this is a salutary uh, tethers <laughs> up there yeah you know because i was thinking like if a tether depending on how long it takes and these tethers do seem to work quite well so they should bring it down in fairly short order but at the same time if that tether is i don't remember how long but quite long then you kind of have another situation with you know possible collisions because you have this long tether attached Mm -hmm. to it so you know i mean let's just hope it comes down quickly before it it impacts something else i think that was 30 meters 
Does that sound right? 30 meters? When you were talking I think it was 70 that? almost. Yeah, 70. But, but let's be honest. The size of the spacecraft is a negligible component uh, of collision chances. Like, space is huge. Or, mm-hmm. Even LEO is huge. So I, I, don't, I don't think we need to try to make spacecraft smaller to avoid collisions. That seems kind of silly. Well, the spacecraft, but I just mean with, you know, the tether like dangling off of it. I mean, I realize that space is still huge even then, but if it's like 70 meters or something, just as we've seen in this instance, that does increase the odds because if you have right, something... Right, but, but what increases the odds more is how long it's on orbit. Well, true. That is a much bigger factor, yes. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah. So, so adding even... This. Yeah, even adding a gigantic... Uh, magnetic tether to deorbit is 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 vastly a net positive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. My only contention would be that if you're putting this tether on and it's still going to take like you know another 50 years as opposed to 500, well then maybe I don't know. At that point, it's like there might be a collision at some point, you know. But I mean, if it's like just a matter of a couple years, which these tethers will do, I I can't remember what the numbers were. We had just discussed them, and of course it does depend on the altitude. But you know, you can bring. I mean, it's, it's, I think it deorbits by like a factor of 20, like it's like 20 times faster. Uh, so they do help quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I think it's totally a net positive for sure. So that's enough of that. Uh, let's translate on over to another interesting topic. The efforts of NASA to, I guess, commercialize the International Space Station. So they have selected uh, somebody for that task. And it is Axiom or Axiom Space. How much have we heard about this? Because it's kind of not been on my radar. No. I mean, we, we've heard about Axiom Space in the past. I think we've talked about them on the show. But um, this this new uh, commercial module is definitely brand new. There's not much that we know about it. There are some renders. I don't know how accurate they are, but it looks cool. I mean, it's, it still just looks like your standard modules that you would have on the station. But I like the color scheme. So <laughs> that's something. <laughs> I mean, and who knows if that's even remotely what it would end up looking like, but that is, that, cool, that is some idea. Yeah. It's got that nice white, like it's like a very it's shiny, shiny, yeah, <laughs> shiny white with like brownish looking solar panels. What's, yeah, what's going on at the, the base of that image there? The virus looking arms. Is that yeah. the cupola? That's the cupola. So the arms are, are the cupola covers. They're the window covers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. I see. Um, that Those windows are absolutely gigantic. I can't imagine that that's actually going to fly anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I think in the render, you can see, if you look close, there's actually a person standing in the cupola that they have there and it's like so it's like as long as a person like you can sort of submerge yourself with the earth and space on all sides of you it's not just a window it's quite big so what'll be interesting is where commercial vehicles dock because this is planned to go on the forward port of node 2 um, which is currently where the uh, the PMA and IDA are the pressurized mating adapter and the international docking adapter are and that's where commercial crew vehicles dock um we we do have two idas deployed so so it'll be interesting to see if they um if they keep the cbm the common berthing mechanism format or if you know they put uh one module on and are you know are able to move the the ida to the front of it or if they're gonna switch to an international docking adapter kind of standard or if they're gonna add their own adapter they can swap on and off um, but this is all so far down in the future that it's it's not you know that urgent of a uh, of a decision to make. But I think it'll be really interesting mm-hmm. looking at these renders. It kind of looks like they're like the ports that they're using are smaller than the common uh, berthing mechanism, but it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. 
it does look good, and I hope that this is what it ends up looking like because I would like to see that. Um, if you're going to commercialize space, that's a good way to do it. It looks very stylish. But uh, yeah, so one thing that we didn't discuss yet is that actually, I don't know how many different organizations were up for selection, but one that we do know of was Bigelow, and they did not make it because they were made an offer of $561 million, and they said that that was too low, that they couldn't do it for that. But then um, apparently NASA then said, hey, that was you know, just a preliminary figure and we might have messed up on that. But by that point, it was too late because like Bigelow had declined and so NASA had gone with Axiom. So we could have seen Bigelow had these two parties known what the actual figures were going to be. Um, but at this point, they're not going to be putting anything on the station, but they are still, I think, in the running for um, a, I forget what it's called, like a free-floating space station. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much longer the beam is going to be on board. Uh, I know we discussed that uh, at least for a little while, I think because it seems to be performing just fine. Yeah, so so it's interesting because people are talking about this being the first uh, you know, the first commercial se segment of ISS and that's that's true, but it's, you know, these wouldn't be the first modules. So it's it's kind of interesting the way that the, you know, you can qualify first in so many different ways and mm -hmm. and uh, and moving back and forth, yeah. So we have a node in, then we have some other modules attached to it. Uh, so we have, at least it says in, you know, the article, it says at least one habitable module. So there might be more, I suppose, but, uh, at least one plus a manufacturing facility. Now, I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? Like when they say manufacturing facility, that sounds like a rather ambitious term to be using for a little module. Like what are you manufacturing? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, that's one module. I mean, just stick a 3D printer in it and it becomes a manufacturing facility, right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose technically that's what would make well, it so, one. Huh? So that's actually a really good lead in. So, so this is all part of Next Step. Uh, the Next Space Technologies for Exploration Partnerships Program. I feel like Next Step is kind of uh, primed for the word manufacturing. So, so Next Step is a NASA program where they they want to basically start working on commercializing ISS. And so there there are a couple of different things. There's they're looking for a commercial segment, but they're also uh, looking to fly commercial astronauts. Uh, up to two per year of people will pay. Um, both of those flying on commercial vehicles and doing short duration stays on ISS. Um, Next Step also wants to work on a better workflow and a new pricing plan for uh, commercial partners to quote unquote hire resources. So you know, uh, crew time. And, and launch capability. Um, hmm. So, you know, specifically last year, NASA actually uh, sort of uh, dedicated or, or made available to the commercial segment 90 hours of crew time and 175 kilograms of cargo. Nobody's saying that that's all going to be taken up, but they kind of set that aside and said, you know, we're willing to sell this much. Um, Next up also wants to pursue a, a better understanding of NASA's need for um leo ops so you know if we're going to be sending commercial crew to space what what else does nasa need in space what does nasa need to protect and pursue um, and so they want to do i think basically some outlook studies um, and then finally they want to do uh what they call additional uh, additional and broader commercial ops like actually pursuing uh, additional commercial opportunities commercial operation opportunities, two words that could be turned into the contraction ops. Uh, but, but basically this comes down to marketing is finding out who is interested in going to space and convincing them to pay NASA to go to space. Um, so when, when we talk about, you know, a manufacturing facility, I feel like 
that's, you know, sort of a, a trigger word for next step, right? That's something that mm-hmm. is going to get the, the next step folks kind of salivating at the mouth a bit. Um, and so David, I, I think your skepticism is not unwarranted. I think it's a good idea to say, well, okay, what, what is a commercial or what is, what does a manufacturing facility actually mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know that we can do 3D printing on orbit, but that's not usually printing things that we couldn't print better, faster, and cheaper here on Earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's mostly for printing things that are better to design or, you know, quick uh, quick turnaround requirements on orbit. Right now, the only thing that we can't really build on Earth, there are a couple of crystal compounds that can only be grown in space. That, that's about it. So uh, I imagine that this manufacturing facility is initially going to be used just for commercial science. That's my guess. Well, you know, that's a very good guess because just as you said, things like crystal growth and I guess, you know, which I suppose has something to do with certain pharmaceuticals. But I mean, that seems yeah, very, mostly. very niche. Like, you know, I don't know what you could do to actually manufacture because if you're manufacturing just in one little module on the space station that's <laughs> i mean there's not much you can do there to scale it up but um mm. at least for research i suppose well and and i think dennis you also had a a good instinct uh a, you know a 3d printer it depending on how we define manufacturing this might be manufacturing for export back to earth it, i just want to use the word export because it feels very the expanse and exciting yeah <laughs> um but it they might also be mostly thinking about manufacturing for on orbit uses. So a 3D mm. printer to build tools that, you know, that we didn't know that we were going to need or potentially even components for a new space station. So Chris in the chat is talking about, you know, what Axiom's future goals are. And Axiom has talked about wanting to have their own free flying commercial space station. Um, and I don't know if their intention is to start building an ISS segment and and then separate that off to be its own uh, its own standalone station. But I think that's probably a good uh, backup plan to have or, or a good target to have because the ISS is not going to be around forever. Um, you know, we've seen some successful efforts to push the retirement of ISS back a bit, um, but eventually those those old modules are going to have to come down. And if you build uh, a new segment with the idea of standalone operations in mind, uh, that's definitely going to add some uh, some longevity to your project. Well, that's an interesting idea that I hadn't even considered. So you could actually build it on station first and then it could sort of detach and then will go off on its own because it seems as though you would need some pretty heavy duty components in order to make a standalone station, such as something like, you know, a truss, uh, which I guess they could put up there. But how do you like realistically do that? Yeah. So, so I think that's a really good question. I actually have an answer for you. Um, so each of these modules are rendered as having solar cells wrapped around the top, uh, the top hemisphere. If that's the right word, uh, of the cylinder. Um, but axioms, uh, you know, kind of publicity shots of a potential axiom station, um, includes basically a service module that, uh, points uh, Zenith point straight up away from the earth. And it looks like a big column with, um, an EVA airlock on the bottom and then a service module on top of that. And then a big, uh, pointable solar array on top of that, which is kind of the truss segment that mm. you're thinking of. So if you start with, if you start with solar cells on the modules themselves, that's probably going to be enough to, you know, keep the lights on and keep the air circulating. And if you want to do some more heavy power stuff, like run 
refrigerators and you know, a manufacturing facility and an experiments facility. <laughs> uh, being able to plug in, you know, a, a, a pointable array is, I think, David, you're right. I think it's a must um, to, to some extent. And, and so that's definitely something that they have in mind, even if it's just, you know, a possibility that they can hand off to the artists. Let's do some short and sweet. What's the first one, Ben? All right. Voyager 2 had a malfunction. Okay, so one of Voyager 2's autonomous fault protection routines was triggered last week, shutting off the spacecraft's science instruments. Telemetry showed an unexplained delay in the execution of a calibration maneuver, which resulted in two power-hungry systems operating concurrently and the spacecraft overdrawing its power supply. Mission engineers have successfully shut down one of the systems and turned the instruments back on, and are reviewing the state of the spacecraft before resuming normal operations and taking data. I, I love that we're we're fiddling with these spacecraft when they are farther than anything else in the solar <laughs> system. Like that's so cool. The delay on this one, I mean, who knows when this actually happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, how many hours away is it by light? So what, if it's 120, it, like it's gonna be something like 140 times eight. So that's uh, uh, 17 hours, 24 minutes. Wow. Okay. Anyway, so next up, a JWST's launch date will likely slip again. A new report from the Government Accountability Office has suggested that the targeted launch date for JWST of March 2021 will most likely slip with only a 12% chance of holding. With such low odds, the new official launch date should be moved to July 2021, as NASA generally requires 70% confidence in establishing dates for its missions. The Accountability Office has also pointed out that additional problems could arise in the final phase of assembly and integration of the telescope so uh i guess no no surprise there jwst is slipping so anyway and finally uh kiops takes big step towards coming online and taking data after its launch in december ESA's kiops space telescope has undergone a number of health tests and calibration activities with its instruments turned on for the first time on january 8th this week the spacecraft exposes detectors to sky for the first time by opening the telescope baffle cover this irreversible mission critical step went quote flawlessly according to project manager Nicola Rando, and in-orbit commissioning will continue over the coming weeks. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We just have one little small correction, but I think uh, an interesting one about parachutes because uh, we were talking about the difference between those on spacecraft and those that we, you know, strap onto our backs and jump out of planes from. Yeah. And apparently <laughs> there was this question about whether or not you actually slowly decelerate skydiving, which is something that you would need to have reefing for, which is a new term that I learned a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So this has been a conversation that we've been having in the questions, comments, and correction burns for like a month now. Right. And uh, so Nick, <laughs> I think he was he's we've had this conversation a couple of times. I don't remember if he was in the last show, but the same Nick <laughs> uh, <laughs> reminded me, hey, um, yeah, parachutes actually do uh, like skydiving parachutes actually do uh, sort of a reefing mechanism. So I had said, yeah, I don't think that that's the case. And he reminded me that that's what the risers for. And I kind of slapped my forehead because I actually do know what a riser is. It just, it totally slipped my mind. I, I went through a little period where I was watching uh, parachute folding videos 
uh, all day, every day for a week. Um, just because <laughs> I, I think it's so fascinating. I was like, I mean, it's kind of like the reason that I got into space was because I was like, wait, I don't even know how we get to the International Space Station. I don't know how many ships are in orbit. I started looking it up and it was just a rabbit hole that I fell in and never, never climbed back out of. But yeah, so the, the way that it works for, for skydiving shoots, it's actually really, really simple. There's a, a thing called a riser. So if you imagine a deploy, somebody dangling underneath a parachute, uh, after jumping out of an airplane, uh, the parachute is, is really wide. You know, it's many times wider than the person's shoulders, right? And that's the, the shoulders are where all of the, all the lines come into. So if you look just above their shoulders, just above their head, there's usually a square piece of fabric that is connected to each of the lines at the corners, right? It kind of groups the lines into, into four bundles. And it's not just there to help keep the lines organized. It actually, when you pack the chute, you slide that riser all the way up those lines to the base of the parachute. So when you release the parachute, that riser slowly slides down the lines and slowly unreefs the parachute and lets it open up. Um, and uh-huh. so if you make a mistake and leave the riser at the bottom, which is reasonably hard to forget to set the riser correctly, but if you did, you know, that, that thing would open at the speed of a car crash. You know, we're, we're talking mm-hmm. a hundred, a couple hundred milliseconds at best. Whereas with the riser sliding down from the top, um, you actually increase that to three or four seconds, um, which is so much more manageable. And that's why when you think yeah. about the sound of a parachute opening, it's, you know, like that kind of long drawn out <laughs> instead of boom. <laughs> right. So thank you, Nick, for for the correction. And it, that's a good thing to add in, even though it's not really in our wheelhouse. Like like Nick was like, I don't know if this is really something you want to talk about. But yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's outside of our wheelhouse. And it's also something that we totally want to talk about. Mm-hmm. That just explains something about how parachutes unfold to me or, you know, unfurl. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I've never given it much thought. I've never been skydiving. So I would, mm-hmm. but now that I think about it, it's a very clever way to increase the deceleration time. So some genius figured that out, I guess, years ago. I don't know when the first risers were incorporated into parachutes, but that's yeah. actually brilliant. Yeah. Somebody, uh, somebody with uh, a very sore groin, I would expect. Yeah. <laughs> yep, probably. Let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. So I see that we only have one winner again yeah. this week. Yeah. So you're doing really well with these clues. Yeah. yeah what one, <laughs> one correct guess and one incorrect guess. So that makes me think that my clue was calibrated just right. So uh, our winner for this week is Coaster Gallery. Yay! Mm-hmm. And our clue from last week was a woman's place is preparing meals, cleaning windows, and toilets on the shuttle. This week in spaceflight history is February 5th, 1947. It was the birth of Dr. Mary Cleave. So Dr. Cleave was born in uh, New York, the state of New York, I think uh, Northampton. Southampton. Southampton, thank you. Mm. Uh, All the Hamptons, East and West Hampton. (laughs) Uh, Lower and Upper Hampton. Uh, So she uh, earned a BS in biology from Colorado State and then went on to get a master's in microbial ecology from Utah State and then a PhD in civil and environmental engineering from Utah State. During her master's and PhD program, she studied algae and cold desert soil crusts. Uh, she studied the prediction of how much river flow you need to maintain certain fish species. Uh, she studied changing water quality on freshwater phytoplankton, specifically changing salinity and, uh, and, and runoff, uh, or the buildup of, 
uh, of chemicals from from runoff and seeping through uh, different uh, sands and rocks. She developed uh, this. This was working for, I believe, uh, the state of Utah. Uh, she developed a document and a data structure for studying surface impoundment, um, which is when you collect. Uh, wastewater, usually from mining and things like that, in either a dry lake or a, a, a human-made uh, reservoir. But you, you know, you impound water on the on the surface that you don't want getting into groundwater and that kind of thing. And she also designed and implemented an algal bioassay center for Utah. So I love biologists. Um, and the fact that <laughs> that that Mary Cleave is like super into algae and. It uh, just makes me happy. <laughs> so anyway, she was selected as an astronaut in 1980. She was the person assigned, the, the first person assigned a quote, real job uh, of her selection group. And <laughs> her job was to go fix the head after STS-1. So, you know, the uh, during STS-1, they were less than happy with, uh, with the toilet. And so she was assigned to actually design a new toilet. And, and the reason that she was assigned to do this is because she was a civil engineer, right? She, she understands mm. uh, fluid flow in pipes and tubes and that kind of thing. In fact, um, one of the links that'll be in the show notes is an interview that's in the oral history collection uh, from JSC. And it's an amazing interview. You have to go read it. And one of the amazing things that she said was one day she was flying in an airplane and she realized that the airplane was an inside out uh, sewer pipe. Um, all of the same fluid, uh, mechanics were happening just on the outside of a tube instead of on the inside of a tube. And she was so excited. Mm. And she told everybody else, you know, all these other astronauts that she was sitting with, Hey, I just realized this. And they're all like, yeah, you know, all these fighter pilots are like, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> think of myself as flying in an inside out sewer pipe. So I hope I'm painting this picture of Mary Cleave being a super nerd, right? But she was also uh, a very, very fun person. So, um, you know, while they're, while her, her astronaut group is sitting in press conferences, um, you know, everybody's introducing themselves as fighter this and Colonel that. And she would stand up and say, hi, I'm, I'm Mary Cleave, sanitary engineer. Um, just to watch the faces <laughs> of all these, uh, press folks going, what the heck is going on? Just, uh, oh, super, uh, super funny. She actually called herself the sanitary fairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, if you can't tell, I just, I think the world of Mary Cleave, she's so funny. Um, so then she went on to work, uh, doing software verification for sale, the shuttle avionics integration lab. Uh, she was a Capcom five times over. Um, she worked on procedures, uh, for mishaps and, and equipment design, like on or like flight equipment design. And then she flew on two shuttle missions. So first she flew on STS-61B. They deployed three satellites. They also did the ease access uh, experiment, which we had as a a previous This Week in Space Flight History. So it was the deployable structures demonstration. So she actually flew the the SRMS, the shuttle robotic, the the shuttle remote uh, maneuvering system, uh, a manipulation system. Jeez, Louise. And so uh, let me tell you the... The funny, the interesting thing first and the funny thing second. Um, so she had done, you know, all these simulators, uh, flying SRMS and actually on orbit, she found it really difficult to judge movement with the earth flying past in the background. And so she actually put a big old mark on the window so that she could judge how quickly, 
uh, and in which direction the arm was moving in, which I think is really clever. Mm. Um, but she mentioned uh, taking delight <laughs> during the ease access uh, segment or during the ease access uh, experiment. Uh, she took delight in getting these uh, these fighter pilots on the end of the arm in the foot restraint system and then cranking the speed up to a hundred and, and moving them very quickly. Cause SRMS can actually move, you know, it can really haul when you want it to. And uh, she said, you know, there was like a hiccup on the radio as they kind of <laughs> have to hold themselves and, and try not to gasp audibly. Just, it cracks me up. But she just thought this was the funniest thing. And then uh, she also flew on STS-30. This was the mission that deployed Magellan, the the mission to Venus. Um, and during STS-30, they experienced a single uh, single event upset in the main computer. Um, they did a bunch of checkout procedures, and the thing seemed okay. But Houston decided to replace uh, the computer, and they you know had a bunch of backups. Uh, but this was the first time that they'd ever replaced a computer on orbit. And it, it's kind of interesting that they decided to do this because the computer was intentionally built to be difficult to access. They didn't want uh, anybody accidentally monkeying with the uh, the computer, so it took hours to replace, and then it was like an hour and a half to to confirm that it was working. But uh, STS thirty uh, had a couple of issues. First, it was delayed a couple of times, and so um, during the delay, oh my gosh, this cracks me up. Uh, Doctor Cleave uh, ordered some uh, some videos from a rental store uh, nearby and sent one of the one of the other astronauts, a male astronaut, to go pick up the videos. The videos that she had decided to rent were Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and All-Star Topless Arm Wrestling. <laughs> so wow. she would sent somebody else to go pick those up. Um, also, uh, before the mission, she was spotted wearing a patch that said uh, Mary Cleave PMS Princess. And then on orbit, they actually had uh, uh, an issue with a couple of different things, but notably the potable water dispenser malfunctioned, which made, you know, preparing meals a little more difficult. Um, but nonetheless, an image was circulated. You know, they take a bunch of photos of the crew doing things. And one of those photos that was circulated around was uh, was Mary preparing a meal. And the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus actually complained about her being depicted uh, preparing food, which, you know, on the one hand, I understand. But on the other hand, like that wasn't the only photo of her that was circulated. Um, and she came out it, sort of in defense of, you know, how astronauts are depicted. And she said, yeah, I do shuttle windows and toilets as well, which I think is fantastic because, uh, as I previously mentioned, she worked, you know, she put a big old mark on the window and she designed the toilet. Like, you know, she said this flippantly, but it, it kind of emphasizes that, yeah, she actually like, you know, was very influential over parts of the shuttle's design. And, you know, don't underestimate her. You know, she's allowed to cook, right? Um, she she's not being relegated to uh, to a servient position. So anyway, uh, she flew on two missions. She was actually assigned to a third shuttle mission, but she turned it down. Um, she decided to move over to the Goddard Center. Um, and a lot of people actually told her, don't go to Goddard. You're never going to fly in space again. If you do that, you're going to you know, you're going to be forced to work on uncrewed missions. And she was like, well, heck, that's OK. She didn't take the the decision lightly, let's say. You know, she she didn't exactly hem and haw, but she spent a lot of time thinking about this decision. But ultimately, she felt like between her two missions, there was four years between uh, 61B and 30. And in that time, she felt like the Earth had changed. 
Um, on STS-30, she felt like she could see cities getting bigger and air becoming more polluted and, you know, bigger, uh, bigger pollution trails in the, in the water, in the ocean. And she said, mm-hmm. I have to go do something about this. Uh, remember, she was a biologist and, and an environmental, like a, a, an ecological engineer, right? Like this is what, this is what she does as an environmental engineering. Um, and so she went off and worked as the project manager of Sea Wifes, uh, which is the sea viewing wide F of wide field of view sensor, which, you know, was a, a water quality and a vegetation, uh, detector. Uh, and she also, you know, did, did a bunch of things, but she also ended up getting promoted up to the associate administrator of the science mission directorate, which is like, that, that's a huge position, right? Um, where she had so much influence over how we do earth science and how we protect the earth. And, you know, if you don't recognize the, the position title, she was succeeded directly by Alan Stern, who's now the the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission. So like, you know, big shoes. Yeah. I think the world of an astronaut who has this crazy sense of humor, uh, who's, you know, super irreverent uh, and, you know, just super funny, but also can turn around and do her part to save the earth and will give up spaceflight to, you know, help save the earth. I think that's, oh, I, oh, I just, I, I love her. She's, she's so fantastic. <laughs> and sadly, someone who I wasn't familiar with until this, uh, little segment actually. So I, I definitely learned things. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, let's just say, yeah. So Mary Cleave, my hero. All right. What then is your clue for next week? Let's see if we can go uh, three for three. (laughs) We might. All right. Next week in 1965, the clue is sitting behind a boilerplate. Okay. Any idea, Dennis? (laughs) I consider it a victory if I even have an idea of where to start. (laughs) Yeah. I do not know where to start with this one. I mean, 65, that's... uh, Yeah, that's prime. There's a lot going on there. (laughs) Yeah, a lot going on in 1965. That could be anything. But uh, so the clue is sitting behind a boilerplate. All right. Yeah, and and I'm gonna. I have an unstated lo- level of specificity required to get full, full credit here. All right. Well, that's vague, but <laughs> I, let's hope somebody responds with the correct amount. I can't be more specific. I'm sorry, but okay. Th- this clue is specific to a certain thing. I need you could be close, but I need you to be specific what's going on here. Okay. Well, if anyone out there thinks they know, and they know with sufficient specificity, then give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Moving along then to upcoming launches. First one is a one-web launch. Uh, first up on uh, February 6th, we've got a uh, the first one-web launch. So this is going to be uh, launched on a Soyuz uh, 2.1B uh, with a Frigate M upper stage. And this is going to be taking the first 34 uh, OneWeb satellites. Uh, this is another one of these uh, super big constellations. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, 720 microsats is the uh, final uh, goal for the company. Mm-hmm. And the launch uh, again, February 6th, uh, with an instantaneous uh, window at 2142 UTC, uh, flying out of uh, Baikonur. And then next up is a Cygnus flight. So we're going to have a undocking that we'll mention later, but this is a, this is a launch. So this is Cygnus CRS NG 13. <laughs> it's a kind of a 
a long string there. Mm. It just rolls off the tongue. It just rolls off the tongue, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, SS Robert Henry Lawrence Jr. And it's flying on an Antares 230 Plus. This is NG-13, but of course it's the 14th planned flight because we had a failure. That's flying on February 9th at 22.33 hours UTC. And of course, that's flying out of wallops, if I don't need to say that. The next launch uh, is an Atlas V in the 411 configuration, and that is launching Solar Orbiter. So that's a joint ESA-NASA mission, uh, which is going to be studying uh, heliospheric physics, or doing heliospheric physics, I guess. David, this is the one that's going to fly over the poles, mm. or at least oh, on yeah. a highly inclined orbit. So that's mm -hmm. why this one is super cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, really cool launch. Uh, so you can see why it's launching aboard an Atlas. I just tend to think of missions like this as requiring a lot of power. So, yeah, that's what Atlas is good for. Um, also very reliable. So, yeah, that's going to be um, launching on February 10th at 0403 UTC. So instantaneous launch window, um, which is not surprising there. That's definitely one to watch. That will be kind of late at night if you're on the East Coast, but not too bad on the West Coast. So, like, you know, 9 o'clock or so p.m.-ish. Mm -hmm. On totally February 9th. On February 9th, that's true. Yeah, so that's important to keep in mind. So yeah, 0400 February 10th UTC is actually the 9th for anyone in the States. So bear that in mind. So uh, finally, as far as launches go, we have a... Uh we don't have a firm launch date, but by February 11th, there should be a uh, Iranian launch from the Imam Khomeini spaceport, where the uh, Simurg rocket is going to attempt to launch a small Earth observation satellite, the Zafar-1. And this will be the third attempt for the Simurg to uh, conduct a successful launch. So uh, maybe third time's a charm. All right. And then we have two events on NASA TV, which I'll cover quickly. Expedition 61 is ending with Soyuz MS. 13 undocking and returning home on February 6th. That's a Thursday. Uh, coverage uh, for the undocking is planned to begin at 12.15 a.m. Eastern Time. Undocking is scheduled at 12.50 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Deorbit burn coverage begins at 3 a.m. Eastern Time and is scheduled to actually take place at 3.18 a.m. Eastern Time, landing at 4.14 a.m. So then I had said that we were going to see uh, a Cygnus undock. That was That was last week. <laughs> I screwed that one up. Hmm. But the uh, the Cygnus that's launching on Sunday uh, will rendezvous on Tuesday, the, the day that the next episode comes out. So that's February 11th. Coverage will begin at, at 3 a.m. Eastern time. And the capture is scheduled at 4.30 a.m. Um, and then installation coverage will begin at 6 a.m. Eastern time. And, of course, you can watch all of those on NASA TV. And there you go. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Quite a few this week. Yeah. Cool. All right. All that out of the way, then I guess we should deal with the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.